Hello and welcome to Full Contact Nerd, where we talk about fiction and storytelling in all its forms. From the weird to the fantastic, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, thrillers, mysteries, anything you can ask for, we have it. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Jess Nevins, author of Horror Fiction in the 20th Century, Exploring Literature's Most Chilling Genre, uh, published by Prager, January 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm pleased to be here. So first, uh, how did you get into studying horror fiction and, and writing about it? Well, I've always been a fan of the genre, and I was working on another reference book, my Encyclopedia of Fantastic Victoriana, mm -hmm. and I was reading some of the reference books on horror fiction, and I was noticing some of the weaknesses in these standard reference books, mm -hmm. um, things like not really paying attention to women writers of horror, not really paying attention to the 19th century roots of horror, and completely ignoring horror writers outside of the English-speaking countries, France and Germany. Mm -hmm. And I was getting more and more frustrated until I finally realized that I needed to write the book myself. Mm. Uh, there's that old Benjamin Disraeli line about how when I want to read a book, I write one. Well, in this case, when I want to read a reference book, I kind of have to write it myself. Mm -hmm. because I have offbeat tastes. So that got me started down the path of writing the book, but the more I got into it, the more I realized that there was a whole world of horror fiction that is not in any English-language reference book mm -hmm. or any English-language book at all. There's a world of horror fiction that's never been translated. And I was, I had to do a lot of translation myself by hand, but the end result was being exposed to this wonderful breadth and depth of horror fiction and horror novels. Mm. And that fed into my book wonderfully. Did you find, I've noticed often um, certain publishing houses will focus on putting out certain genres such as horror. Did you see that sort of thing in non-English-speaking countries as well? It wasn't until the 90s and Stephen King that horror became a separate genre, a separate marketing category, I should say, okay. in non-English-speaking countries. There were countries like South Africa, which had a strong tradition of horror, and there were countries like Spain and a lot of the Latin American countries and Brazil, which had published horror fiction of various stripes over the course of decades, but it wasn't really until the 90s when publishers around the world realized that there was a lot of money to be made publishing horror fiction, and so they put time and money and emphasis on publishing it. Okay. Um, and I notice your book is um, laid out chronologically. You have, I guess you call it the golden years at the beginning and then the middle years and then uh, the current 1970 to 2000. 
uh, within that, how do you break down um, the subject matter that you look at? I went roughly chronologically, roughly by um, alternating between America, Great Britain, and then the non-English language countries, which I'm calling the, the English language countries, I'm calling the Anglosphere, and the non-English countries, all of them are outside the Anglosphere. So I, I go from the U.S. to Britain to the Anglosphere, and that would take up that would take up a third of the book, and then within those thirds, I would try to stick to a chronological order, but sometimes I had to pay a lot more attention to movements within the within the genre or subgenres of horror. Mm-hmm. Um, the book is primarily chronological and linear, but it, I, it does get a bit discursive at times. Because there are aspects of horror fiction, horror fiction's history that I find very interesting, and so I hair off in one direction or another and pursue it to an end, and then get back to the main chronological process. Um, in the last third of the book, I talk about the history of horror fiction in comic books, and then the history of horror fiction and young adult young adult fiction and then horror fiction in uh, gay and lesbian literature and then horror fiction in uh, Latina American Latinx literature and Australian Aboriginal literature and Native American literature so in answer to your question primarily chronological but with some variations is it a mix of like encyclopedic uh, entries and essays, or how does the book break down in that regard? Generally, each chapter is a an introduction to introduction summary of what was going on in a particular decade or a particular country mm-hmm. during a certain section of time, and then I start devoting a paragraph each or more than one paragraph to the major and significant minor writers of horror in in each category. So in the first section, M.R. James gets a couple of paragraphs and Algernon Blackwood gets a couple of paragraphs. But I also spend paragraphs on really good writers like Evelyn Smith and Mason Clare, who are either forgotten about now or just not thought of as horror writers. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is me just writing about the best writers of horror, but then when necessary, I'll also talk about movements and who influenced who and why. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not an encyclopedia because I didn't do it A to Z, it's more of a, well, chronological annotated bibliography, maybe. Okay. Were you able to trace the lineage of um, the non-Anglo, um, I forget the term you used, the Anglo uh, sphere? Anglosphere. Mm-hmm. Did they have any distinct lineages um, the way, you know, you find in the Anglo world, or, or how, how did you see it there? A lot of times I did um, in 
1910s, 1920s, even as late as the 1930s, there were distinct American influences, especially of Poe and um, Bierce on various Central and South American countries. But then the uh, magic realism movement started, and so you can trace the lineage of a number of different countries' horror output from the magic realism movement. I, you could construct a huge genealogy chart linking most countries and most countries' authors together going back to Poe, but there are always countries and authors who pretty much came out of nowhere. There's a Rwandan author from 92 who wrote a piece of far future science fiction horror that I, I don't know what impelled this author to write this book. Uh, I suspect that the tense times in Rwanda had a lot to do with it, but I'd love to know what authors inspired him to write such a peculiar book. Mm -hmm. um, and in some cases, things like the colonial publishing industry had a outsized effect on the horror writers in the colonies and the former colonies, mm -hmm. so that Indian horror fiction, a lot of it is heavily influenced by these English authors. And there's um, one not very good English horror writer, not Colin Wilson, I'm drawing a blank, uh, but he was, he was a bestseller in sub-Saharan Africa for about two decades, much longer than he was in Great Britain or America simply because the former colonial presses kept churning them out and the local audiences didn't have anyone else to read. <laughs> I guess there's many ways to success. Yeah. I'm speaking with Jess Nevins, author of Horror Fiction in the 20th Century. You can find more information at jessnevins.com. Please rate this podcast on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. These ratings go a long way in increasing my listenership. Please sign up for my newsletter located at chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. Please post your comments about this podcast or the episode on Facebook at chrisalvarezfcn or on YouTube at chrisalvarez. You can contact me directly on Twitter at chrisalvarezfcn or on Instagram at chrisalvarezsci-fi. If you like military history, please listen to my podcast, Military History Inside Out, located at warscholar.org and militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you like outer space business, technology, and policy, please listen to my podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks, also located at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. I appreciate any support you can give me. Now back to the podcast. So did any of these... Um, so, as you just said, you know, many were influenced by colonial publishers. But um, did any of the lineages stand out as more independent from Western horror than, than others? Yes. Um, magic realism has some roots in um, Western 
American and North American and British literature, but a lot of it is uh, specifically Latin American response to Latin American culture and historical context. Uh, Chinese horror fiction and Japanese horror fiction is very much native grown and native influenced. Um, things like Indonesian and Malaysian horror fiction, uh, Korean horror, South Korean horror fiction. These are all homegrown uh, and didn't really have a lot to do with what was being published elsewhere, good and bad. Basically, the farther away you got from the United States and Great Britain, the less influential American and British authors were on the native authors. Now, that changed in the 90s when the great horror publishing boom internationally meant that authors in Japan, for example, were being exposed to Lovecraft for the first time and suddenly were doing a lot of Lovecraftian horror. Hmm. But in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, it was all... It was all their own doing, all their own work, all their own influences and cultural context and all that. Mm -hmm. So in these different lineages, I'm curious, uh, horror involving people, horrific, you know, human beings versus horrific monsters or, you know, something like that. Do you see what kind of differences do you see in that sort of antagonist? Magic realism and maybe 55% of all Latin American horror is about uh, the environment and the universe acting upon a person, a more or less innocent person, or driving a, driving someone mad and then tormenting them further. Hmm. And 45% is about the horror that comes from people's actions. Uh, Eastern Europe seemed to be fairly evenly split between Gothics, which were very much about the past working on the present and people caught in the backwash of the past, evenly split between the Gothics and stories about, or allegories about the government or about communism with individuals being standing in for society as a whole. I would say that the monster as the source of the horror tends to happen more often in American and British horror fiction, English language horror fiction, than in non-English language horror fiction. There are plenty of, of examples of monsters in non-English language horror fiction. Uh, Africa had a couple of uh, West African countries had a few great stories about kaiju-sized creatures in the 20s and 30s. But generally, it's either the universe acting upon a person and the universe being the monster, or a crazed or evil or simply metaphorical person tormenting other people. Uh, it's a general rule. It's not 100% accurate. I can already think of some ex exceptions. But as a generalization, it's roughly accurate. Well, it's interesting um, just to hear the different ways 
that horror can be expressed. You know, these different categories that, that you listed are, it's really interesting to learn about it in that way. So, yeah. The, one of the things I enjoyed most about writing the book was discovering all these new authors and their individual creative ways to get a rise out of the reader, to frighten the reader. I mean, largely the goal of horror fiction is to frighten the reader. Mm-hmm. And as I discovered, some horror writers in non-English-speaking cultures took, took an approach that wouldn't have been done at all in America or Great Britain, mm-hmm. whereas others were anticipatory of later approaches. You had uh, violent ex-boyfriends and violent ex-husbands in Brazilian and Chilean horror fiction back in the 30s and 40s. Very feminist writing of the sort that wasn't approached in the U.S. until the 70s and 80s. Hmm. Um, You had metafictional horror coming out of some coming out of South Africa, for example, in Lesotho. You had the evil child archetype appearing in Japanese horror fiction pretty early. Hmm. It was I I could never predict or anticipate what I was gonna find just because there was so much variety. Hmm. And one of the reasons that I hope a universal translator gets invented sooner rather than later is that all this wonderful literature can Americans and Britons and Australians and Canadians and all these English language readers can finally be exposed to it. Did you find much in uh, from China and Russia? Russia was had a lot of stuff before the revolution, had a peculiar variety of pulpy horror in the late 20s up to 32, 33. And then what horror there was was Samizdat or snuck into children's literature in the 1970s. Hmm. And then once democracy sort of returned to Russia in the 90s, you had a lot of horror there pretty influenced by Western writers, not just modern ones like Stephen King, but traditional ones like Jack London and Edgar Allan Poe and Ambrose Bierce. China was... China took some digging. A lot of the horror fiction out of China before the 90s was not labeled as horror fiction, wasn't really intended to be frightening, but had frightening elements nonetheless. Hmm. So there was a 1941 play from Shanghai about... King Kong, the King Kong, swimming over from Skull Island to Shanghai and stomping the hell out of the Japanese. (laughs) And the summary I read made it clear that this wasn't a playful King Kong, this was Wrath of God King Kong. And it was produced by the Shanghai Children's Theater and intended as a diversion for kids. And I'm sure that in that audience, there was an equal amount of fright as well as, you know, the raw enjoyment of seeing King Kong beat the living hell out of the invaders. Mm -hmm. Um, Did India follow basically the Anglosphere 
a lineage or did they break off in any way? India was can can roughly be split into highbrow and lowbrow. The lowbrow was much more influenced by the by the British writers, especially British writers of the late nineteenth, early twentieth century. The Indian highbrow tradition goes back centuries. There are stories designed and intended to frighten from Indian religious writings a millennia ago. And the Indian highbrow horror writers deliberately drew on that tradition. Um, after the 40s, after independence, it, 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 the split maintained was maintained by authors, but there was also a lot more mixing of the two. You had some very highbrow authors writing popular horror fiction, horror fiction series for kids, occult detective series, uh, just a lot of, a pretty wide range of imaginable stuff. So there was definitely a British influence there, but the more highbrow stuff, the more stuff intended for the elites was more purely Indian. So do you mostly focus on adult horror literature, or it sounds like you have some children's horror as well in there? I, I have a separate chapter on horror in children's and young adult literature. Mm -hmm. When I was writing about uh, horror in the English language countries, I generally focused on horror fiction written for adults. But in some countries, the pickings were somewhat slim on the ground, and so I had to include the horror written for children as well as the horror written for the adults. Um, Soviet Union in the 70s, the main place to find horror was in these children's books. And there was one female author in particular who, was, who kept putting horror into her children's books, and I define horror as uh, fiction written to frighten with tropes or dynamics or plot devices or archetypal plots from traditional and historical horror fiction. Mm -hmm. um, but she smuggled these things into children's literature, and the censors wouldn't notice it because it's only children's literature. Hmm. So when I was talking about Soviet Union in the 70s, that's really all there was. And so I wrote about that, not just because it was all there was, but because it's pretty interesting that this author managed to slip it in there uh, for well over 15 years, if I'm remembering correctly. Hmm. Okay. Uh, were you able to notice, or did you, um, did you notice if uh, any of this literature changes in style or, or themes were dependent on... Uh, any national crises or catastrophes that, that this particular audience had suffered, you know, like war, disease, financial shock, that sort of thing? Yeah, a lot of it is uh, reactive to current events and written to convey a message to populations suffering from, from various current events. I'd say the major change is stylistic. You went from a more formal language to a more in, 
as the common common patois in which horror fiction is told to a more informal language. After the great horror boom in the U.S. in the 70s, it reaches Britain in the 80s, and then everyone else in the 90s. And so traditional Chinese horror fiction from early in the 20th century is very formally structured, very formally told, whereas Chinese horror fiction in the 90s is on par with anything written in the U.S. in terms of slang, informal approach, uh, stylistic innovation, that sort of thing. There was definitely, in Soviet bloc countries, there was definitely a lot of allegorical stuff about the influence of communism on the average Bulgarian or Hungarian or, or Romanian or whoever. That changed after the Soviet Union fell apart and then there was horror fiction about the horrors of basically reconstructing the country. But I would say that horror writers around the world are as reactive to calamities and financial woes as American and British writers are. It's just that because there's a lot less horror literature in a lot of these countries, the, the, the examples stand out stronger than they do here. Okay. Are you able to identify any works that you consider the most important in horror literature as far as creating change or new styles or, or some other impact? Like him or not, Lovecraft was very influential in horror fiction late late in the century. Stephen King's influence is undeniable in the in the seventies and eighties and nineties. I would say that three quarters of the horror fiction in the English language world can trace itself back to uh, Arthur Machen and Algernon Blackwood and M.R. James and Lord Dunsany, who I call the Machen Quartet of the 1890s, 1900s, 1910s. The most influential writers weren't always the best writers, but if horror literature is a pawn, there are certain writers who created the biggest ripples in the pond by throwing the biggest rock in it. And we may not enjoy those writers, but, you know, we have to acknowledge their influence. Internationally, uh, I'd say someone like Borges on magic realism and Latin American horror was the big influence. Trying to think who else. In the 50s, there were a group, there was a group of Californian writers who were known as the group, uh, Richard Matheson, Charles Beaumont, Fritz Lieber, uh, even Ray Bradbury, and their influence on narrative style over the next 40 years was pretty heavy. They're sort of underrated and forgotten about now, but if you look at how language was used and how stereotypes and tropes were inverted, that goes back to the group. So, yeah, there, 
there are a handful of heavyweight influencers. I'm thinking that would be a good subject for a book, but I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to write anymore. So. So um, you did mention. I think you mentioned um, the influence or influence on comic books. Did you, does this does this book touch at all on, you know, like all the horror comics that were out? Yeah, I I do a bit on on manga and. Then I have a chapter on the horror comics of the late 40s and then EC and all the EC knockoffs. Mm-hmm. And then the reaction to horror comics being banned in 54 with work by Wortham and, and the Congressional Subcommittee, mm-hmm. um, which led to the Marvel and DC horror comics of the 60s, which led to the horror magazines of Marvel in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So I cover all that. One shortcoming of the book is that I really needed to spend time talking about horror, horror comics in the 80s and 90s, but I just ran out of space. Uh, I had a hard word limit from my publisher and some things I just didn't have the space to include and that was it. Mm. How much is... um? Is sex tied in with horror over the, the hundred years? More and more as time goes by. Um, I'd say it's a it's a recurring theme, but it it gets somewhat explicit with Arthur Arthur Machen, and then it's all subtext until the fifties and sixties, and then it becomes foregrounded with the Stephen King generation. Hmm. Um, but in terms of the sexual allure of a woman or man leading to the destruction of the victim, that's a that's a traditional plot that's never going to go away in horror fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say before the Stephen King generation of the 70s, it was almost always subtext. There are a couple of examples I can think of where it was foregrounded surprisingly so in various ways but it's and certainly when authors made it subtext they were deliberately doing it Mm. um but it's more alluded to than anything else i'm i'm thinking of a particular horror story written by a woman author in the early 40s where she gets a note from her, it's the main character, the protagonist is in London during the Blitz, and she gets a note from her ex-husband that he's going to see her soon, and whether or not she likes it, and she just shakes her head at his foolishness, and then goes out to catch a cab, and her ex-husband is driving the cab, and the last image of the story is her vainly beating on the windows of the taxi cab as it drives her off to her doom. Um, title of the story is The Demon Lover. I can't remember who wrote it. But sex was strongly present in the story without ever being explored. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. I'm speaking with Jess Nevins, author of Horror Fiction in the 20th Century. You can find more information at jessnevins.com. 
please rate this podcast on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. These ratings go a long way in increasing my listenership. Please sign up for my newsletter located at chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. Please post your comments about this podcast or the episode on Facebook at Chris Alvarez FCN or on YouTube at Chris Alvarez. You can contact me directly on Twitter at Chris Alvarez FCN or on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi. If you like military history, please listen to my podcast, Military History Inside Out, located at warscholar.org and militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you like outer space business, technology, and policy, please listen to my podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks, also located at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. I appreciate any support you can give me. Now back to the podcast. Another another uh, big sort of subgenre of horror I like is horror and sci-fi. Um, the Cuckoos of Midwich comes to mind. Uh, oh, of course. I guess that can be classified either, or does, is it more a sci-fi with horror or horror with sci-fi? And, and how much horror and sci-fi have you found? To take the last part of your question first, hmm. there's a decent amount of sci-fi horror. It depends on how you define science fiction. Uh, my definition is fairly broad, so I'd say I found a, a good amount of sci-fi horror, but other people who are more restrictive about science, their, how they define science fiction would look at the examples I chose and say, no, that's not SF. I tend to think of horror not so much as a genre as an approach or an authorial intention. Hmm. If it is a genre, it's one of the most missable of all genres because you can put horror into any other genre and it mixes easily. Mm -hmm. You can do noir horror, you can do romance horror, you can do western horror, science fiction horror, baseball story horror, railway, <laughs> railway pulp horror. It's always, it always mixes easily with whatever genre it's in. I would say that sci-fi horror became less successful in the 80s and 90s, in, in my view anyway, mm -hmm. when the science fictional impulse became a lot more space opery and taking humans off Earth into outer space, into asteroid fields, into, onto other planets. And into alien empires, or into space wars, or anything like that. I tend to think that the best that horror mixes best with science fiction when it's a science fictional universe that is either uncaring or actively hostile to humans, hmm. which is hard to hard to do that when you're writing space opera, for example. And of course, there are always exceptions. Mm -hmm. But I, I would say, yeah, there's a lot of science fiction, horror. I think they mix well as, as genres go, or as genres and approaches go. Mm -hmm. But uh, I tend to like the stuff before, say, 85 and after 2010 more than stuff of the late 90s and the, and the aughts. That's just me, though. I, what do I know? 
What would you include stories where um, someone descends into madness without like um, a precise pre uh, antagonist, or would horror need to have an antagonist um, stimulating the madness that the character is suffering from? The way I define horror, no, you don't need to have you don't need to have a monster. You don't need to have an antagonist acting upon the protagonist. Mm -hmm. Theorists of horror fiction go back and forth on whether you need a monster or not. I tend to fall into the no monster school. Mm -hmm. um, there are, in the book I cover, more than a few examples of very successful horror stories and novels that are all about unreliable narrators being made more unreliable by what they are either seeing or think they're seeing. Mm -hmm. And there's no real antagonist in these stories, just a descent into madness. And with the descent into madness comes frightful moments for the reader. And that, to me, satisfies the definition of horror. So mm -hmm. to answer your question, no, I don't think you need a monster or an antagonist, someone going mad and becoming frightened of the walls in their room. That works, works just, just fine. Good. Yeah. Personally, I like that too. And that, that gives me another reason to want to read your book. Um, since you do have, since your that's your approach. Yeah. So uh, let, let me turn to uh, how you did the research for the book. Um, you, t you mentioned a few of the things you did. Um, can you go into more detail on how you gathered all these stories and, and uh, you know, came up with your thoughts and ideas? I knew a fair bit about the genre to begin with. Mm -hmm. And I had a couple of the standard reference books. And then I looked at their bibliographies and saw, oh, there's this horror encyclopedia from 1979, which looks like it covers a lot of authors that I didn't hear about, didn't know about. So I bought several reference books on horror from over the decades and used them to establish a base. And then I'm a, I'm a college librarian, mm -hmm. and I have access to a pretty wide range of catalogs and databases, especially one called WorldCat, which is a database of the library catalogs of something like 90% of the colleges and public libraries in the United States, Canada, Mexico, and Great Britain. Mm -hmm. And WorldCat breaks books down by subject headings, and so I simply did searches in WorldCat for horror and fill-in-the-blank country, mm. and then gothic and fill-in-the-blank country, and terror, and fear, and ghost stories. And after I did all that, and got a huge list of books, then I started going to the major research libraries uh, within driving distance, um, specifically Texas A&M in College Station mm -hmm. here in Texas, and then the University of Texas in Austin's uh, Harry Ransom Center. Mm -hmm. They had a lot of older, rarer books that 
individually purchase. And so I did a lot of reading there. As I delve ever more deeply into international fiction, I realized that on the one hand, buying copies of the books wasn't going to be that bad because a lot of them are only translated into French. And buying used French books from the 70s or 80s or the 60s or 50s is fairly manageable on a librarian's salary. <laughs> that was the good news. The bad news was that I had to do the translating myself. Yeah. Um, and I spent an inordinate amount of time translating. But I was regularly uh, doing new searches in the databases and reading the bibliographies of new books that I, uh, new reference books I, I acquired or new articles that had just come out mm-hmm. or new books that had just come out. Uh, there were, I think, two different very good reference books uh, or three different ref- very good reference books of horrors that came out, reference books on horror that came out while I was writing my book. And in each case, I was petrified they were going to do the things that I thought I was, uh, that my book would be, would be unique to my book, but they usually didn't, but they all had good things to, good things to, for me to use and more sources for me to draw upon. Okay. I also used the interlibrary loan service in my college library to, as much as I could. A lot of the non-English language books are held in libraries that I, that my library could borrow from. So I get books from the, oh, there's a National Library in Hong Kong that sent me a book on Chinese horror films. I learned a lot more than I would have ever, ever have guessed about Chinese horror film, the Chinese horror film industry in the 30s and 40s. It it's, was unexpectedly fascinating. <laughs> but I was borrowing books from all over. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also ended up taking a trip to the British Library in England and the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. So I spent a fair amount of money to write the book, but... I'm I'm very happy with the end result, and mm-hmm. uh, the money was worth it. So, I mean, the whole project sounds fun, but was there anything that stands out as the most enjoyable part of what you were doing? The most enjoyable part for me was finding some book that not only had I never heard of, but that had a Google had Google search results of like 10,000 or 5,000 or 1,000. The real unknowns that turned out to be fantastic reads. Mm. There's one Brazilian novel from 1908 that is going to be reprinted in a year or two by the MLA, the Modern Language Association. I'm writing an introduction for it. Mm. It's science fiction and fantasy and horror it's a gothic. It's uh, the first novel of a transsexual. It's the first novel of transsexual horror. Hmm. Uh, it's pro gay rights from a time when Brazilian society was not pro gay rights. Mm-hmm. It's it's got some really good lines. Now 
my translation from Portuguese was very rough, but and I lacked the 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 uh, author's poet's touch for phrasing. Mm-hmm. But even when I translated, I was excited about just because it was this grab bag of excellent stuff that, as best I can tell, well, it's a story. There's a story here, but basically. The author got on the wrong side of the modernists in the 1920s and was banished from literary society in Brazil for the rest of the 20th century and has only made a comeback in the 21st century. Hmm. And so he's a real obscurity in Brazil and a total obscurity everywhere else, and yet he produced this work that was totally unpredictable, went ways... I didn't think it was going to, and just was a complete surprise from start to end. So it, it was the joy of discovery that is what really spurred me onward, because I never knew when I was going to read a story. Oh, uh, the University of Texas at Austin, in their general library, has two books of English-language Indian horror fiction from the 40s, from right after World War II, Mm -hmm. that are heavily Poe-influenced, but in a very Indian context. And so you had three stories that are sort of like Poe's Chevalier Dupont stories, but they are very Indian at the same time, and, well... I just love finding things like that yeah. because uh, it's joy of discovery and joy of being able to, in a way, claim ownership of them in the book as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the uh, English title, or what will be the English title of the, the Brazilian uh, work you mentioned? The Sphinx. The Sphinx, and what's the, the author's name? C-O-E-L-H-O-N-E-T-O, and the, I think that's it, Guelanetto. I haven't thought about it in a few months. Um, the Brazilian title is E-S-F-I-N-G-E. And there's actually a copy of it online in Portuguese that you can find um, and just run through a Google Translator to get a general gist of what's going on. Hmm. Interesting. Like I said, the MLA translation should be out, well... It was supposed to be out in 2021. It's probably now going to be out 2022, but it'll be it'll be worth waiting for. Okay. Now, this next question I was going to ask, but I read uh, someone did an interview with you, birds-feather.com. They had a pretty good interview, and they asked this question of what you found most surprising. But what I'm going to ask a twist on that. So your answer included you were surprised by how many... Um, female writers of horror there were in the 19th century. My question is, did you find that same ratio into the 20th century? And if not, what changed? Or what do you think changed? The quick answer to that question is that male editors and male publishers were uneasy with female dominance in the field. And when some male authors hit it big, the editors and publishers essentially decided to blackball the female writers and highlight the male authors and thereby turned 20th century horror into a mostly male-dominated 
publishing category where in the 19th century it had been female-dominated. That's a pretty broad generalization, I know, and I can think of exceptions to it, of course. Mm -hmm. But, and there are other reasons why horror in the 20th century became male-dominated for most of it, which was the reverse in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason was that women authors of horror tended to tell more traditional ghost stories, and of course there are exceptions. There are always exceptions, but traditional ghost stories were the meat and drink of female horror authors for for a good few decades, and the traditional ghost stories they told were seen as old hat by and cliched by horror fans and even horror critics. So case changed, and a lot of what the female horror writers were writing were seen as as undesirable. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, just like in the 19th century, in the 20th century, in the 30s and 40s and 50s, when horror seemed to be almost entirely male, there were women's publications that were publishing horror stories Hmm. and there were outlets for female writers in terms of publishing lines that weren't available to men the i i know the best-selling female horror writer in britain in the 70s was rosemary timberley or timberley but and i've been able to find a little bit about her but there is there's a lot more that I don't know that I wasn't able to find out about. Nonetheless, she was the best-selling horror author, and she wasn't writing in mainstream magazines. She was writing for women's magazines and was publishing romance or gothic romances, which had a lot of horror elements in it. Okay. So, on the one hand, there was an intentional effort by the publishing industry to de-emphasize women's authors and emphasize male authors. But on the other hand, the female authors kept writing and were writing for women, writing for a female audience that sort of went, went unnoticed by the main, the male horror audience. Interesting. It's an area that will reward future feminist researchers because it's unexplored it'll take a good bit of digging to find these but what you'll find in there I'm pretty sure from what little I've read in these uh, women's publications like women's pulps or the women's digests or the gothic romances it's high quality it's just not what it's unexpected and it's not what was read in the mainstream of horror fiction. So get after it, PhD candidates. There's, hmm. I just gave you a subject. Yeah, that sounds really, really interesting. A lot of nuggets there to dig up. A lot of gold yeah. nuggets. So you also mentioned you were surprised at how transgressive 70s fiction was. And I'm also, that brings to mind... Uh, film at that time was also transgressive or, you know, really exploring different things. And I'm curious, 
did you find, did you look much into the interplay between um, film and literature, how horror film affected maybe what kind of horror literature was written? Generally, I stayed away from film because that would have required a whole lot more research than I had the energy to do. Mm-hmm. And also because the film, the genre of horror film has been covered pretty well, I, I was afraid I didn't have anything new to say. And I was facing the hard word limit put on by the publisher and decided I was just going to stick to literature and, and prose and comics and everything, and the printed word rather than what was filmed. Mm-hmm. But I did talk about the, I did briefly talk about the rise in British horror fiction in the early 30s and the British government's censoring of it and how that was indicative of the British audience's approach to horror in the 30s. Hmm. Um, Basically, British horror was not what British readers wanted to read, for the most part, in the 30s. And just as they turned against film, I mean, the government turned against film, but the people went along with it. Hmm. The people basically tuned out the, the native British writers and what had been a British-dominated genre in the 1910s, 1900s, and even 1920s pretty much became an American genre and for good. Hmm. So apart from uh, providing the information we've discussed to readers, um, what else do you hope the book will do? Most of all, I hope it will get people curious about horror writers from outside of the U.S. and Great Britain, because there's an increasing amount of it in translation, and this is especially so over the last 10 years. And these translated works are usually pretty well translated and have great power, great surprises. They're not at all what you would expect. They're not at all predictable if you're coming at this purely from having read uh, American and British horror fiction. I I know this is kind of an elitist approach, elitist thing for me to say, but the more international stuff you read, and you can find a lot of it in libraries. You can request a lot of it through libraries in a library loan service. You can buy used copies fairly cheaply. Uh, The more you read of it, the more you will appreciate just how wonderful the human mind is, how wonderfully perverse people can be, and the shared taste that humans from very different cultures have for being frightened. There are... I, I could do a really good anthology or a really good novel series of just female writers from Spanish-speaking countries because just just those writers, just the women alone, just the female writers of the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s were doing powerhouse stuff that is only now being translated. And if, if modern readers read it, they would, it won't be like anything they've read before in a very good way. So that's that's the number one thing I hope people take from my book. Mm-hmm. And also, of course, a greater appreciation for the 
depth of skill and brilliance of so many horror writers. The Monkey's Paw is one of the most cliched stories in English language because everyone's read it, everyone knows the plot twists. Yeah. It's been parodied and done, redone over and over, but if you look at it with fresh eyes, you'll see that it's really a very tight story. Mm-hmm. Packs a powerful punch in relatively few pages, and a lot of the classics are like that, and we have forgotten them because we're focused on the new. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Those are the two things I hope you take away from it. So you mentioned uh, the word count with the book. Did you have any other difficulties in getting the book finished or published? No. Um, editing, uh, when I decided to do add international authors, non-English language authors to my book, I decided I was going to just write everything and then I edit it down when I was done. I had so much international material that I ended up doing a print-on-demand book just of international non-English language horror writers. Um, That one is called uh, Horror Horror Needs No Passport. What's in 20th century, horror fiction in the 20th century is the painfully edited down version of what I spent more time in in Horror Needs No Passport. Editing down to get to 110,000 words was the most difficult part of writing a book. Everything else was about standard for writing a book like this. Uh, the publishers were a dream. They were very supportive. They really liked what I turned in. Okay. I, I've written more difficult books, definitely. So I, I have very fond memories of the writing, reading and writing process for the book. Uh, what's your current writing project? I'm writing a role-playing game. Hmm. Uh, It's uh, a game about the Viking invasion of England in 865 AD, Mm -hmm. and I'm writing it using the rule set for Dungeons & Dragons, but taking, throwing out most of the Dungeons & Dragons apparatus and using my own. Hmm. Um, It turns out that Viking culture and Anglo-Saxon culture was created and lived and propagated all so that somebody could write a role-playing game about them because <laughs> they it's it it is the it's not low-hanging fruit it's fruit that's been lovingly peeled and chopped and fed to me by hand mm-hmm. um, the Viking beliefs in magic so neatly fit into Dungeons and Dragons style character classes that. Mm-hmm. I'm having a hard time believing that nobody's done this before, and I feel like I'm getting away with something. <laughs> so, do you have a, a? So that's my current project. Uh, do you have a, a publisher you're working with for the game, or right now you're just? Uh... I'm going to do it as a Kickstarter. Hmm. Um, I'm hoping to get all the art commissioned and paid for and done by the end of the year and then do it as a Christmas Kickstarter. If not, it'll be spring of next year. But no, I'm going to do it independently. My previous experience with a publisher, role-playing game publisher, didn't go so well. And Hmm. rather than go through that again, I'm just going to do it myself. It'll be an expensive Kickstarter, but I'm really enthusiastic about it, and I think... 
it'll be interesting to enough people to to make as a Kickstarter. So mm-hmm. I'm excited about it. I'm about half done writing it, and it's not like anything else on the market right now. Cool. So where can people find you um, on the web, like web page, social media? JessNevins.com. My Twitter handle is JessNevins, and I'm on Facebook as JessNevins. Uh, I don't have any pseudonyms online. It's just me. Um, my The blog on my webpage is only intermittently updated. I post several times a day on Twitter, which is where I spend most of my time. Yeah, look for me on Twitter. And I'll spell that for listeners. It's J-E-S-S-N-E-V-I-N-S. Right. All right, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Well, thank you for having me. Um, I realize the book is is expensive compared to all the average horror novel, but there is, I think you'll get your money's worth if you buy it or just read it on Amazon Kindle or read it through your library. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of fun stuff to discover, and I tried to cover as much of it as I could in my book. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for speaking with me. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, please subscribe. Please also rate Full Contact Nerd and review it if you can. I have many more options to nerd out on sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. You can check out my website, chrisalvarez.com. That's Chris without an H. I have 20 mini-blogs on the site covering sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, writing, mysteries, folklore, mythology, and many more topics. You can find my video playlists and my original videos on YouTube under Chris Alvarez. I cover sci-fi short films and games, fantasy fiction, horror short films and games, video and board game design, and more. You can get interesting news on fiction and fiction studies on my Twitter page, Chris Alvarez FCN. You can find cosplay and convention photos on my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi. You can sign up for my newsletter on new books on my websites, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. Thank you for listening, and keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.